We're now in the sixth week of our series, Cloud of Witnesses, and as you know, we've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11, famously known as the Hall of Faith, and we're looking at the lives of the men and women in this chapter, because the best way to see what faith looks like is to look to those who live by it. Because faith, after all, isn't just believing the right things, it's living in light of what we believe. However, the main goal of Hebrews and and the main goal of this series isn't just to celebrate the faithfulness of these people. It's to see how the faith of these men and women points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, the author and perfecter of our own faith. Uh, Faith for us then as Christians, our working definition in this series is the total alignment of ourselves with Jesus. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, uh, our actions, they all align with the person and promises of Christ. Uh, Last week, Mike walked us through the life of Abraham and Sarah, uh, and we saw how Abraham and Sarah, that uh, true faith, not only results in exile, but keeps our eyes focused on the promises of God in the midst of exile. And we're going to continue looking at Abraham's life and his faith, but this week it'll be in relation to his son, Isaac. And this particular story of Abraham and Isaac is a difficult one. Uh, Hebrews sums it up in chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Now this puts it gently. Abraham didn't offer Isaac up like an infant dedication or baptism or something. God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham gives Isaac up in that sense. Fantastic text to celebrate your one-year anniversary. It's not surprising uh, that this moment in Abraham's life has been um, difficult for many interpreters throughout history. It's been described as disgusting, horrible, atrocious, And we want to know why. Why would God ask for such a thing? And let me tell you, explanations abound. But the text simply doesn't answer that question. It doesn't tell us why, out of all of the ways God could have tested Abraham, that he tests him in this specific way, asking him to sacrifice his son. Uh, The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann gets this. uh, In regards to why God made this specific request, this is what he says. The expositor must take care not to explain, for it will not be explained. But without explanation, the text leads us to face the reality that God is God. Our only option, is to enter into this text, enter into this story, and follow where it leads us. And this approach anchors us firmly in reality because God can't always be explained. And when it comes to faith, faith more often than not takes place in a world where God doesn't always make sense. So accepting that I cannot and will not explain parts of this text, let's enter into the story together and see how it unfolds, and see where it leads. We're going to walk through Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, but as we've been doing, we're going to let the author of Hebrews uh, determine uh, how we interpret this story. He'll ultimately be guiding the way. Uh, We'll look at three things this morning. Uh, A tested faith, uh, the promises and provision of God, and our own testing. 
So open your Bibles with me uh, to Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Abraham has a tested faith. God tested him. And right away, this bothers us. You know, why would God want to test us? It seems so manipulative. This doesn't seem loving. You know, loving parents should nurture and protect, not put their kids through tests. A good teacher should empower and support, not breed competition through testing. Uh, our culture is, is becoming hypersensitive, you know, uh, to the point where there can only be winners, right? There can be no losers ever. There's trophies for everyone. Uh, it makes me think of an episode from Arrested Development. Uh, Maybe, whose name is delightfully misspelt, uh, went to the Boston Sunshine Academy for elementary school. Uh, it was a progressive school uh, that didn't use grades. Um, and rather, you know, the students were based on how the subjects, you know, math or science or English, made them feel. Uh, you know, so math makes maybe feel sunshine. Uh, science makes maybe feel Elvis. English makes maybe feel jack-in-the-box. Uh, now this is, you know, obviously an over-exaggeration, except when it's not, but it captures where our culture is drifting towards. True love nurtures, we imagine. It doesn't uh, challenge and demand and try and judge. But the scriptures say otherwise. When God tests us, though, it's not manipulative. He does it out of love. He does it for our benefit. Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. And likewise, in the New Testament, it talks about our faith being refined like gold or silver. God tests us to refine us, not to manipulate us, not to knock us down a few notches, but to build us up. James, in his letter, says that God's testing is so that we can be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the aim of God's testing. But it leads us to ask, why does God test Abraham now? This passage, is, it's reminiscent of Abraham's first encounter of, with God, his, his calling. And when God first called him, he called him by his original name, Abram. And he promised Abram that he would make him into a nation through which the world would either be blessed or cursed. And of course, this was odd because Abram and his wife, Sari, had no children. They were old. Sarah was, was barren. And now here we are, years later, with Isaac in the picture. God has begun to fulfill his promise to Abram. He has the heir. The beginning of the promises is, is manifesting before his eyes. But here God calls him Abraham. Why the extra letters? You know, names matter in scripture. Abram means uh, noble father. And Abraham means the father of multitudes. Simply by the way in which God addresses him, we see that this testing has to do with Abraham's identity and calling. It has everything to do with who God has called him to be and what God has called him to be a part of. Uh, will Abraham simply settle for being the father of Isaac, the noble father of a child? Or will he become the father of multitudes? So God calls him again. God tests him on this, and Abraham responds, here I am. It seems so matter of fact, but Abraham, he's not just giving God a heads up about his location. It's about his availability. It's about the posture of his heart. What we see 
in Abraham is that he's ready to say yes to whatever God asks or requests of him before he even knows what it is. Here I am, Lord. I'm ready. What, where are we going? What are we doing? I'm in. Now, this is the true posture of faith. This is the sort of faith that leads us to actually live in light of what we believe when we're willing to say yes to God before we even know what God's willing to ask of us. But this is precisely where the story gets dicey because this posture leaves God free to ask us to do things we may not want to do. Look at verse 2. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is the horrible part of the story. This is the make our stomachs churn, you know, look for the exits part of the, of the story. How on earth could God make this request? Abraham isn't asked just to give up his son in a sense of priority, but to make him into ashes through a burnt offering. And I've, I've said it already, the text doesn't tell us why God made this request specifically. It can't be explained. And so we have to decide, is God allowed to make this sort of request? Put it differently, is God truly free? Is God free to do whatever he wants and to ask whatever he wants? Our gut response is to say no. We can say no and we, we, we can refuse to let God be God, to let God be free and unrestricted, which means at times he might be dangerous. But simultaneously, we don't want to throw God out of the picture altogether. So instead, we settle for our own definitions of God. But if we do this, if we worship any other notion of God at all, it will only be a counterfeit God who we've constructed. A God who operates on our terms. A God who keeps us safe and comfortable and gives us everything we want. But make no mistake about it. If we begin to say what God can and cannot do, if we begin to define God simply because we want him to be that way, we will not be worshiping the true and living God. He must be free to reveal himself to us. Or we can say no to this picture of God because it's this sort of biblical story that makes you want to throw up your hands in the air and say this is why society needs to abandon this archaic notion of God. This is why I don't like faith or religion. And if this is who God really is, I would rather the fires of hell, to be honest. And while everything in us wants to say no, let's turn around, God isn't worth it, or let's construct a safer, more manageable God, or let's abandon this archaic notion of God altogether. Abraham says yes. Abraham, his yes shows us that it's only by encountering God on his terms that we'll truly discover who God is. And there's no alternative. Uh, do not let the things you do not understand about God, indeed the things you may never understand about God, drive you away from him. But instead, in those unknown areas, press into him, no matter how much discomfort it causes. Because if we follow Abraham's yes into the story, if we keep going, we will discover what it means for us to follow God in the midst of the many other ways he doesn't make sense in our own lives. 
And we'll also discover God for who he truly is. But saying yes means that God gets to be God. He gets to be truly free, which means at times he, he gets to be foreign and beyond explanation to us. So if you're in, here we go. Doors are over there if you're out. The tension as we move forward only escalates. In verses 3 through 6, we get a lot of details. Abraham makes preparations. He prepares the wood. He heads off with two men and Isaac. And, and three days later, they get to Moriah. And Abraham, from that point, uh, presses on only with Isaac. He leaves the two young men behind. Uh, Isaac carrying the wood, Abraham the fire and knife. And in verse 6, it says, they both went together. The story, it moves so slowly. It gives so much detail. It's, a, it's as if the text itself doesn't want to arrive at Moriah. And on this slow and hesitant walk, Isaac addresses the elephant in the room. He asks his dad, the noble father, in verse 7, Behold, the fire in the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I think we can only read Abraham's response as both cryptic and hopeful. Cryptic because Abraham knows what Isaac does not that his sweet boy is going to be the sacrifice. But hopeful because amidst the test, Abraham believes that somehow God will be the provider. And verse 8 concludes and emphasizes again, so they went both of them together. And then we, we move almost as if we're in slow motion as we finally get to Moriah, as they finally arrive. Verse 9 says, When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. And there's so much description. Abraham built the altar. He laid the wood. He bound Isaac. He laid Isaac on the altar. And then we get to the moment we didn't want to get to, the moment that the text tried to delay for us. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The knife is in hand. His hands are ready to slaughter his son. And we have to ask, what is happening? Because God has already disturbed us in this text, but now Abraham is equally disturbing to us. Is this what faith will make us become? What is going through Abraham's mind? How can he lift his hands with a knife over his son? Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 18 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham refuses to doubt God's goodness. That's his faith. Abraham trusts beyond understanding that God will find a way to bring life even out of this death scenario. You see, when Abraham lifted up that knife, he had to let everything die, not just Isaac. 
He could not lift up that knife unless he renounced all hope in any sort of worldly power whatsoever. The promise of God will not come simply because he is now a father. And the promises of God will not come by any planning or accumulation or goods or talent, you name it. The promise of God that Abraham will one day be the father of multitudes will only come by the hands of God and his gracious provision. And this is why the author of Hebrews says that Abraham in lifting up that knife is actually taking an act of faith. Faith in the power of the resurrection. Because resurrection, after all, is the keeping of a promise when there is no grounds for it. Abraham must have thought to himself, I'm about to kill the only sign that I have that God will fulfill this promise to me. But surely, somehow God will keep his promise. Abraham abandoned it all and left it in God's hands, the one he believed would provide. But it's still not easy. We may not have to lift up our hands with a knife, but we equally have to abandon ourselves to God. We have to let go of all the things we hold on to for meaning and security, for a sense of of purpose and self-worth, and even sometimes the things that God himself has given us, and turn to God alone. The knife is in Abraham's hands. He's about to slaughter his son. He's abandoning it all. And at the last possible second, relief finally comes. The words we want to cry out ring out from heaven. Abraham, stop! Verse 11 through 14 read, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by his his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. God provides. God follows through on his promises. The same God who tests is the same God who resolves the test, which should make us wonder, what was the point of the testing? How did this build up Abraham's faith at all? Because in verse 12, it seems to be more about God. The angel says, now I know that you fear God. When God tests our faith, we don't come out on the other side of it with a greater sense of certainty in our own faith. We come out with a greater certainty about who God is. Abraham abandoned everything and he trusted God and he doesn't respond by celebrating his own faithfulness. On the other side of the test, Abraham's identity and his calling are firmly rooted in who God is and what God wants to do. He responds by declaring, the Lord shall provide. And just as Abraham hoped God would provide, God provides. He he gives life on the other side of death The the ram, you have to realize, is not just there by coincidence. This is God's sovereign hand directing events, providing abundant grace, showing himself to be the God who does not desire death but life. 
But for life to come through the promise given to Abraham, a death must take place. God provides the sacrifice, a substitute. He, he provides a ram, but not a lamb. Not a lamb like Abraham mentioned in verse 8. Why is it a ram instead of a lamb? This detail, I think, is tucked away in the text for an important reason. Uh, the test God gave to Abraham is a picture into what God is ultimately going to provide through the calling and promise given to Abraham. This entire story, the sacrificing of a son, uh, life bursting out from death, uh, is a glimpse of what God will ultimately do when he provides the lamb. What God didn't ultimately uh, require of Abraham God would one day give himself everything God promised to Abraham, his calling to be the father of the multitudes, his calling to, you know, see this come forth from the promises of God, was all so that God could bring his only son into the world, his beloved son, the true son of the promise. This was what was truly promised to Abraham. This is what Abraham was getting a glimpse of. In John's gospel, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, a light bulb goes off. You know. He says, there he is. You know, behold, the lamb that was slain, you know, who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb of God. Sorry, I went to Revelation. It's there too, but you know, John. The lamb of God who takes the sins away of the world. I can't talk. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We'll get it. We need it to lighten up apparently. <laughs> Just as... God provided Abraham a substitute, a ram instead of his son. God provides us a substitute, his only son for our lives. God gave us Jesus as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And the, it's because our sins had to be dealt with. And the scriptures are unashamed in this fact uh, that the only way our sins could be forgiven is through the crucifixion of Christ, God's only son. Jesus carried the wood of his cross. He was bound to it. He was laid upon the altar. And Jesus died the death we deserved to die. He was substituted. But through Christ's death, God has provided us everything we need. It makes you wonder, why would God provide such a costly substitute? Tim Keller puts it this way. I love this. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. He wasn't just offered up by his father on the mount, but was sacrificed for us all. And while God said to Abraham, now I know that you fear me, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now I know you love me, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. As we put our faith and our trust in the death and resurrection of Christ, we discover God's profound love for us. But we can be assured of this if we do. If we say, all I know of me to all I know of Jesus, God will test us. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this in chapter 12, that when God tests or disciplines his children, it's not because he's acting harshly with them, but because he loves them, because he wants to refine them, because he, he wants the best and, the, uh, and good for them. You know, God asked Abraham for the best thing in his life. And God has a right to ask us 
the best things in our lives. And, and he will ask you for these things. Whether that is your job, your possessions, your, your loved ones, even your children, God wants to refine us, asking us to trust him with everything we have. And he might ask you to do foolish things, risky things, things that don't make sense or things that you just don't want to do. He might call you to leave your home, to leave this city and go somewhere unknown. He may call you to sacrifice being close to your family. He may call you to give a large sum of your money, if not all of your money away. He may call you to leave a relationship that seems pretty good. He may ask you to do something you're just not interested in doing. Switching jobs, or, or going to school and starting a new degree, or, or serving on Sundays, or, or uh, going and, and caring for the poor on Saturdays, or writing letters to prisoners. He may call you to make ethical decisions that go against the culture of your workplace and of your job. He might finally call you to talk about the secrets that you do not want to talk about. And here's a hard one. He might call you to stay put, to wait, to trust him. He might even call you to let go of something that he gave to you. To turn away from something good for something unknown. Whatever it is, in the process of our testing, we learn to abandon any reliance upon ourselves, any reliance upon worldly powers, our resumes, our, our health, our talents, our savings accounts. Uh, we learn that we put way too much trust uh, in things being the way we want them to be. We learn to abandon our plans and our charts and our milestones about how life was supposed to unfold. Because if any of these things become more important than God, they become our functional saviors. They become our gods. We will worship these things instead of God. And what we'll do is we'll redefine God to serve these ends, to serve our aims and goals, rather than us worshiping and serving his end, his aims, his goals. And so we learn through testing to trust our entire lives to God to abandon anything that needs to be abandoned, to reprioritize anything that needs to be reprioritized so that we can trust solely in what God has provided for us in Christ. This is why the author of Hebrews over and over in his, his letter says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And in this instance, we look to him because Jesus withstood every single test sent his way. He willingly said, here I am to his father. He always said yes, because he trusted completely in the goodness of God the Father. And Jesus did this in the most ultimate sense when he sacrificed his life upon the cross, when he surrendered it all. He trusted that God could bring life out of death. And through his obedience, through his faithfulness, through his passing the test, he provides everything for us. It, 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 you can't even end, you know, a piece of paper, like you just go on and on about what Christ gained for us by going to the cross and through his resurrection. Um, in him, we're forgiven because he was forsaken. You know, in him, we're free because he was bound. In him, we are loved because he was abandoned. 
In him, we find intimacy with God as he cries out for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In him, we're given the hope that the power of the resurrection really does change everything, and not just our lives, but the entire fabric of creation. Because dead stuff comes back to to life. What could possibly be the same if that's true? But I think I speak on behalf of us all. I would have failed Abraham's test. I can't even wrap my head around it. I I wouldn't have done it. I so often fail even the littlest tests that God seems to send my way. Like uh, this morning, Julia, you should get to sleep in, but I'm going to sleep in instead. You know, like I just fail at being kind. I, I I, I, I just always see the gap. Do you know what I mean? The gap between this life that I feel called to and the life that I actually live. But the good news, the very good news, is that even when we fail, Christ succeeds. And if we fail, God uses it um, to create avenues of, of repentance and humility as we discover our dependency upon Jesus. You know, it's through failure that we discover our deep need for the power of Christ's resurrection uh, to enable us, to strengthen us, to guide us. And if we succeed in God's tests, it simply points us to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. We cry out like Abraham, the Lord is the provider. He's, He's enabled me. He's strengthened me. He's guided me. It's all because of Christ living within me that I even pass the test at all. Just like Abraham, when when. God tests our faith, we don't come out on the other side of it with a greater sense of certainty about our own faith. We come out with a greater sense of certainty about who God is and what God has accomplished for us in Christ because our evaluation before God isn't based on how well we'll do when he tests us, but on what Christ has accomplished for us in his sacrifice. Both our failure and our success when God tests us are used to anchor us in Christ and the power of his resurrection. And our faith is tested so that we can discover that God has provided everything that we need. And in this way, we truly do come to say to God, now I know that you love me, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me.